Hello and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Monroe, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guests about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is Basma Khalifa. Basma is a filmmaker, director, writer and stylist, but I recently read a nice description of her where they said Basma is a Sudanese multidisciplinary creative living in London, which I thought had a much nicer ring to it. She graduated with a degree in fashion business before embarking on a career in PR in New York. Then she moved to London, where she began working with magazines like Vogue and Harper's, and then she set up as a freelance stylist. Basma has featured on all sorts of programmes for the BBC and ITV, amongst others. She's also presented an incredibly successful BBC Three documentary, Inside the Real Saudi Arabia and Why I Had to Leave, which reached an audience of over 15 million worldwide and earned her a nomination for Best Newcomer at the Edinburgh TV Festival. She has also recently finished wrapping her first self-shot documentary in Egypt, and starred in the recent Clark's Originals campaign promoting diverse storytelling and finding your unique voice. Basma regularly consults with brands on diversity and inclusion. There's so much to talk about, but for now, I'd like to say a huge thank you to Basma Khalifa, and welcome to This Is A Token. Yeah, my accent. <laughs> Sorry. It's like, yeah. it's like everything I love about accents. It's like, I'm just in love because I think we've got some Scottish cause the connections a long way back. Yeah. So you seem to have all those lovely things, but then it's like got a lovely sort of honey so my, I grew up of, in, um, I, I grew up in Northern Ireland until I was about 13. I'm about 3 Thir- to 13. These 13 sounded a little bit Northern Ireland. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, I got that. And then I went to three years of high school and three years of uni in Dumfries, which is just outside Glasgow. Yeah. On the border, yeah. the first time on the border when you go into Scotland, so I've mixed up with accents. Yeah. So Irish and Scottish. Um, I didn't know that you moved from Northern Ireland to Dumfries. I really like this description of you as a multidisciplinary creative, mm. because it feels like that's more of a kind of option for people, and maybe a few years ago you you'd really would have needed to have been pigeonholed. Yeah. 100%. I put writer in there because... I've written a lot. You've done so much, <laughs> yeah. and it's such great, engaging writing, so you're obviously a writer. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. It's funny with all my different careers, obviously it's fashion was the beginning, and being in PR, I mean, going back to the very, very beginning of my life, like I, I'm from Sudan originally, my parents are from Sudan, mm-hmm. um, but I was born in Saudi Arabia, and we moved to Northern Ireland, my dad got a job in Northern Ireland, um, in a small town called Lisbon, just as I said, Belfast. And from there, when I went to high school in Dumfries, and then I did three years of uni in Glasgow, and then I moved to New York, and then I moved to London. And at that point, because you did fashion business, yes, in Glasgow, it, you must have been thinking, I want to get into the fashion business. Yeah, totally. So Ironically, I actually wanted to be a primary school teacher. That's what I really wanted to be. Primary school teacher or fashion business? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's what I wanted to be. And then when you had to fill out those UCAS forms, I just was like doing it with my mum, and I was like, I don't, I don't think I want to work with kids for my whole life. I love kids, but I don't think this is my calling. 
Not and all she the was time. just like, okay, so let's start from the beginning. <laughs> so yeah, fashion business. I think I got away with it having African parents. I got away with it because I graduated from a business school. So I had fashion disciplinaries, but primarily it was a business degree, which I think kept them happy. Was there any conflict between being a Muslim and fashion? Yes and no. I mean, I've never worn a hijab, but my mum does. My mum wears a headscarf. You know, there's a modesty element to it. My family are religious enough that I've always kind of dressed modestly. If anything, Sudanese culture is very, like, it's it's a big celebration. Like, the bold colours and sequence, and fashion's a huge part of our lives. So I never looked at it as Islamically, as much as I did look at it as this very Sudanese thing. I think the reason I say that is because from a sort of English-British view of fashion, like, modesty has nothing to do with it. There's two sides, I think, on the one one hand. It could be, like, really arty, Mm -hmm. or it can be quite exploitative, where you have stick thin models, you know, showing a lot of flesh and perhaps just barely covered up and then sort of older male guys in charge of the model agencies and the the fashion businesses and as an exploitative nature to that. So uh, my middle daughter said that she wanted to get into fashion and I was like, oh, that's nice. But then it was like, I gave her a little one and I was like, do you know this business has has an edge to it? Yeah, I wouldn't, going back now, I mean, I was in fashion in the the noughties, I guess, like Mm. 2010 onwards and it was brutal if you weren't stick thin. Part of me leaving the industry was for that. There were no people of colour, there were no women of any size or shape. It was the supermodel era, it was the Victoria's Secret era. Yeah. So it was a very hard industry to be in. And I think the reality of the industry and that I knew I was only going to go so far was why I left. I was never going to get the job. I was never going to get picked. And it, it's very high school. It feels like you're in the playground, like mm. primary school all over again. Mm. You're not going to get picked unless you already have money. Mm. So I was competing with girls whose dads owned, you know, jewellery mines in South Africa mm. and had a house in the south of France. And I was just like, I like I live in a little yeah. two up, two down house with my parents, my brothers. Like it's just, it was just not the same. And like my dad did well and we lived in a lovely, like a lovely house, but it, the competition is not the same level. Even now there's, there's some problem with that because it's so much based on internships mm-hmm. that if you, you know, to be able to afford to do an internship yeah. at Vogue or Tatler or something like that, it can be quite a long thing and, yeah, and you, you need to have probably friends who live in London to stay with and you need to have parents that can pay for your Yeah, definitely. Travel. I mean, it's better now because now interns have to get paid. Back then, I maybe, I think it was £25 a day. And my brother, bless him, let me sleep in his bed. He was working yeah. in London. And I had to sign on and get government support. And they were like, because you want to intern as a fashion assistant? And I was like, yeah. But like, it's kind of, I hope it's going to be a career one day. It's going to be okay. And we relied, I was speaking to a friend even about yesterday. We relied on free lunches, free dinners, free breakfasts and freebies to get close it was crazy but it kind of like I, I, I can see a really strong thread running through everything yeah. so it kind of has turned into a career hasn't mm-hmm. it yeah in the sense that you can't separate a lot of your work particularly everything that's going on in Iran is mm-hmm. is it's a kind of about fashion in the right. sense that fashion is about people's right to freedom and self-expression it's 100% you hit the nail on the head like I I think I went into fashion because of that I don't mm. think the industry was as leaning to that mm. idea I don't think it was about self-expression back then I think it was about fitting into the mould and acceptance mm. but I think now being in film and being a documentarian or a filmmaker fashion has such a different vessel for me now because I use it as a way to talk about you know women's yeah. rights or people's rights and I'm so glad that I have the relationship I have with fashion now as opposed to the one I had so I've seen bits of you when you're on the news and stuff and then I was kind of confused in the sense that when Harry was getting married to Meghan like they kind of get you on the news yeah, they do, yeah. is that because Meghan yeah you know, it, it's, it's like it feels kind of 
quite corny or something. I don't know. I, mean, yeah. I think you had really good insight yeah. and stuff, but it's just so weird the way the media work. Yeah. yeah, I guess it becomes a lose-lose, right? If they didn't get any black people to talk on about that time, you would have been mad at them. Yeah. And then they get a couple of black people on, and you're like, oh, it's just so performative. And I'm like, well, I'm not pro-media, but in that situation, I was like, it was good for my career because yeah. it elevated me and I needed the elevation because actually, yeah. I don't think people realise that black people need the elevation because we've been so forgotten and so downtrodden for so long of it. We're not complaining about being given the opportunity. It's other people that are like, oh, this is performative. And I'm like, I will take the performance because it's helping my career. I need the opportunities. We had quite a, well, for me, it was like really upsetting and shocking experience with the Black Lives Matter movement Mm. because a really brave young woman called Cassandra wrote a a sort of open letter to the jewelry industry saying you're racist you're basically that the whole system is racist from top to bottom yeah. and then people like me were like huh and suddenly you realize that you've been part of a system that's yeah been... i think blm was hard for people in that sense white people didn't realize that they were complicit not voicing it and not saying anything doesn't make you less complicit than the people that are actively doing something particularly sort of fashion jewelry that i do is mm. it's predominantly uh women that study it and what I hadn't thought for a minute was that actually it's much harder for a woman of colour mm-hmm. who maybe comes from a family who are very keen on their children earning money to pay the rent. It's a different journey. So a lot of black women come into jewellery through the hobby route. So they'll go and do the, the degree that their family expected them to do. But then they find themselves drawn to jewellery because it's something they really want to do. And so they come in, in through the back door, through this mm-hmm. kind of hobby route. And then every single door that's open to me is, is closed in their faces. There's stories ranging from absolute racism mm. to just a sort of neglect and, and, and not realising and just not mm. getting the opportunities. But it was a bit of a shocking um, thing to yeah. go I mean, through. But, I feel yeah. like, and I say this all the time, you know, the white man has to be the ally because above even white women is the white man. Mm. And then there's a white man. But then also we have to remember that with even with black people or people of colour, the black woman is still at the bottom behind the black man. So there's still yeah, a totem yeah. pole for us as well. So it's, you know, the levels of survival, the levels of getting anywhere, you know, whether we've changed a lot, we have since BLM and a lot of things have mm. changed and we've given a lot more opportunities, but still the white man will reign on top mm. and as many allies as there can be of white men, the better it is for all of us, but they kind of have to want to be. And I think that's a bit of the struggle. It seems to be going in two ways. I think one way is that you can... You can shut up and listen. It seems to me to be a very good starting point on any of these kind of risky subjects that might be about transgender or colour or or gender, all sorts of things. Really do a lot of listening before you even start thinking about anything. But a lot of um, young men that I've come across have gone into the internet Mm. and have found a place Mm. where they can feel like the victim now mm. and that's kind of quite a dangerous um thing that's happening i don't know what you're hell you're supposed to do about yeah. that but um it's a defense thing isn't it <clears> like <throat> when you're when your environment is you know being attacked you're going to defend like it, like it's just almost like what men do they defend yeah so um i get it and i don't think we're at a place where we're at an equilibrium where everyone's kind of on the same to- like same path i don't think that's where we are at but I do think for every, I guess, white man that feels like he has to defend, there's a bunch more that are like, no, like, let's help. Why not? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I, I hope that. so. And also, you, it's a bit of a pendulum, isn't it? So mm-hmm. in the US, you, you have Barack Obama, and then you have Donald Trump. So, exactly. you know, But you have to hope that it's a pendulum yeah. that will end up in the right place. And I have to say, like, I mean, the fashion industry is white women. It's, there's not many men. But I wonder who 
who are the shareholders that own oh, they'll the company? Oh, they the white men. <laughs> and who are the shareholders that yeah, own yeah. LVMH? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the actual ultimate power. Mm-hmm. I, know, I know there's a lot of representation, but I think yeah. people always forget. That. Oh, yeah, the ultimate power will still always be the white man. Yeah. I said this about the Oscars, you know, yeah. the best directors for the Oscars this year is all white men. Yeah. Like, they couldn't even find, like, a woman, even a white woman. Like, it's wild that it's all white. Like, in this day and age, we're now in 2023, we've had BLM, we've had all this. And still a bunch of people sat in a room and said, this is the best this world has. This is okay. This and it's okay to do this. I'm often surprised because I'm quite often asked into a sort of committee mm. or a sort of boardroom or something mm. like that. And I'll turn up and I'll see five or six of my mates. Mm. And there's basically five or sixes of me in there. Because I've got the kind of <laughs> yeah. grey stubble yeah. and everything mm. that is me. Yeah. And I meet all my mates and we all go, oh, you're on it. Well, of course, we all asked on it because we're all mates and we have a nice time. But it's like there's no point in having five or six identical people yeah. in a room what you want is to make this committee productive yeah. you need five or six different people yeah. but they're not all mates because they're so different so it's quite hard to get those groups of people together I think. but is it hard or does it involve the research that's the interesting thing about it I think actually it's the easiest route is to be like okay well I know all these people they all know each other so they'll all mm. get along mm. so it's easy it's it's um People have to go out of their way at this point, and whether people are willing to do that is a different thing. I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people are. But in saying that, like my career, my film career, I have gotten as far as I've gotten because of white men who've been like, "Hey, I'm going to take a yeah. point on you. I'm going to help you." Yeah. Because they knew they're at the top, so they're like, "Let's help. Like, yeah, let's do this." Um, talking about that, can we watch? I saw mm-hmm. YouTube bits, but can yeah. we watch the um, inside the real the ins- Yeah, it's inside- actually not online yeah. anymore. But um, why, why not? I, I mean, can I'm give you a link. Yes, great. Is that a link that would be available for our listeners? I can make it available for a little bit of time. I don't know if I'll get in trouble with the BBC, but if we just don't tell them, I'll uh... tell them. They don't listen to this podcast. Yeah, so we we will be able to watch it. Can you just tell us about? How you got to the point, and do you need to get a commission? Mm. You know, do you, do you sell the idea before? How does that happen? Yeah. So the documentary was my first, was kind of my debut documentary. It's the story of the life I would have had had I had not left Saudi Arabia. So I left mm. there when I was like two. So and I haven't been back since. It was sort of like a twenty-five year return. My aunt still lived there, so got family there. So it was about the life I could have had, and um, it was a long journey. Now I look back on it. It was a big jump from fashion styling to being on TV suddenly, and it, but, but it wasn't suddenly. It was about a three-year, I'd say, journey. I started off on YouTube. I did start off with the YouTube mm-hmm. channel. And the YouTube channel was me interviewing women of colour in the fashion and beauty industry about what it was like. Way ahead of its time. Because now I look back at it, I'm like, if I would make that now, it'd probably be a lot more successful. But at the time, it was just like a lot of people were like, why are you talking about this? And I was like, because I'm black and I'm in fashion, so I kind of want to talk about it. It's great. Ahead yeah. of your time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. ahead of my time. But I used that as a way to sort of say, hey, I can um, I can interview, I can mm. be on TV, I can be personable on TV. Mm. And then, to be honest, all I did was I used to watch a lot of documentaries and I'd write down the credits of every single person that made them. Mm-hmm. And then I would just go on LinkedIn and I would just add everyone. Every single person that I had a documentary in their title or producer in their title would email and just be like, I have a bunch of ideas, I have a bunch of ideas. And then eventually, an incredible man called Mickey Minstrati got back to me the same day I added him and I was like, I just have a bunch of ideas I'd love to pitch to you. And he... Um, he was like, yeah, come in tomorrow. And I had like a job the next day. I remember I cancelled wow. the job and I went in and I was like, I want this idea, this fashion industry idea, this thing about fashion or that thing about fashion. He was like, yeah, great, great. But like, who are you? What's your story? Like, what's your deal? I was like, well, you know, I was born in Saudi Arabia. I'm from Sudan. He was like, okay, slow down. You were born in Saudi Arabia. Have you been there since you were born? And I was like, no. And he was like, are you seeing what I see? And I was like, oh, please don't make me go back to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and he was like, but that's the story. That's the story. So... 
the BBC actually rejected it, I'd say, four times, three or four times in the space of two, two and a half years. You know, it was like, we love her, but why now? And then why her? Why now? There's the, the, it's always the same common questions. Mm. Why her? Why now? Why this story? Why, why, why? Eventually, the weird thing, the way TV works is as a presenter, you can't pitch by yourself. The production company has to pitch for you. Yeah. Which I always find really frustrating because I was like, I can pitch me better yeah. than someone else can pitch me. Um, but that's just the way like things work. Yeah. I get it, because otherwise they'd have millions of young people yeah. pitching. So I went to a talk that the man that we were pitching to was at, and I just caught him in the last five minutes. I was like, hey, I have an idea that's stuck that you haven't applied to. And he was like, God, I get like 700 ideas a month. I just, you know, who's your idea with? Right. And I was like, oh, Mickey Mistrada. He was like, oh, I love Mickey. And I was like, well, you know, we've got this idea. And he said, okay, well, can you get Mickey to send me the idea again? Just say you met me here and put that at the top head of your of the conversation. I was like, okay, well, and I rang Mickey and I was like, just send it right now. Send it right now. And he's like, okay, send it right now. And then a week later, it was greenlit. And we, off to Saudi Arabia we went. That's such a nice yeah. example of how just, you know... I mean, I think a lot of things happen through luck. Mm. But I think if you have a bit of luck and you add a little bit of get up and go... Yeah, it's get up and go. It's a tenacity to just you, be like, I'm can, going to make this. Yeah, and you can sort of add... You yeah. can add a bit of to your luck, can't yeah. you, rather than... So then you find yourself, yeah. like, on a Well, on not a even plane. then the Saudi government, there was the whole thing with the killing of the Turkish journalist. Oh, gosh, And yes. that was happening at the same time as the week we were meant to be getting our visa. And I was like, there's no way they're going to give us this visa. There's no way. They're, like, there's, this is all mm. over the news. It's really messy, whatever. We still got given that visa. But the problem was, it went from being, you know, this lovely, wholesome story of me... Mm finding myself to a current affairs documentary overnight mm. and I've never even been on TV let alone filming mm. a current affairs documentary but you know my team was like well you've got to mention it now because this is yeah. the current situation while we're filming so you can't yeah. ignore it so it became such a bigger yeah it became a bigger thing and then yeah long story short it went out there it was meant to be there for two weeks and then I got chucked out after six days oh my gosh so I saw the clips I didn't know it was only six days Six days. Oh my gosh. Which is okay, amazing. So... We got a whole documentary in six ah. days. So the boot came back in the BBC. We're like, listen, it's fine. Like it could be a little short. Like we try, these things happen. But um we still managed to make a whole 55-minute documentary. It was amazing. But am I right in thinking that when you were out there, was that when that young woman was, was killed? No, by the, so the, oh. no, the young woman that I spoke about was imprisoned, but she'd fought for the right to drive, for a woman to drive. So I right. sort of spoke about how amazing I thought that right. she, it was things she'd fought for had happened. I was like the, in amazement. I kind mm. of like loved the fact that women were driving and I was driving the car, we were having a discussion and then they just didn't really like that I was talking about her. They were like, you can't talk about her. I was like, oh, I didn't know. Like, I don't know the rules. So, like, okay, good to know the rules. But at this point, they were just kind of a bit irritated anyway. So they were like, we're done. We don't, we, you just, you shouldn't be here. Like, you need to leave. How long do you have? Do you literally... 24 hours. So you, you literally go home, you, you pack your... Yeah, it plays out in the documentary. My exec phones me, Mickey, and he was like, I have to get you out of the country. Because they're going to cancel your filming permission, and then you're in the country illegally. So we have to get you out now. Yeah. So pack up your stuff, say your goodbye, yeah. stay in the house, don't go anywhere, and we're booking your flight for the morning. It was terrifying at the time. It was very terrifying. It was very real, like yeah. watching the clips and things. Yeah. So it was it, real. It, it was very real. <laughs> and my thing is, I was really gutted, because I was actually genuinely enjoying my time. So I just, yeah. it's a beautiful country, and they've they've 
built it very well and I was spending time with my family and I you know I was having a really nice time so I actually part of me like part of me being upset was I was just a bit gutted because I wanted to finish the mission. Will you be able to go back? People ask me that all the time and I think that um I guess I can only try. <laughs> like I don't know I don't know if I will try and go back anytime soon. I'd like to though. Yeah. Like as you know someone who's Muslim and Mecca is there and we did go to Mecca and it was incredible like the most insane experience of my life that yeah. I that definitely brought me closer to religion. I wasn't yeah. as religious before, I say, and now I feel like I was like, wow, I had a really transformative spiritual journey being there. So kind of Mecca's almost yeah. sort of not on the border because there's the sea in the mm. way, but it's quite close to Sudan, yeah, really, is, isn't yeah. it? So you can sort of see, because I thought Sudan yeah. was further away, so I was interested in that link. Sudan's probably the only country in Africa that's we're Arab and black. Mm. So we're African mm. and Arab, and it's so we're like Afro-Arab. So it's a very complicated identity in Sudan because you're a bit of both. And also there's been lots of kind of infighting. So there's yeah. South Sudan and Sudan, and Sudan so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a complicated identity as it is. Have you been to Sudan? Yeah, gold. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to go. I mean, because of COVID, we haven't been in a few years, but before that, every summer. So you just go for a lovely vacation, yeah, and it's and it, is it somewhere that you would recommend someone I'd say, to go? I've never probably, been to Africa, is why I'm asking. Oh so. my god, you've never been to Africa? No, I've never oh, been to Africa. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking. So that's what you should do. I'm really interested in trying to up our game with the diamonds that we yeah. use because in the diamond business, there's an awful lot of kind of greenwashing. So mm. everyone says they're great, but mm. actually, when you look into it, there's mm. a lot of harm done. But there's a really nice scheme I like called Botswana Mark. Mm. And the Botswana government owned the mines and the money from it goes to the community and back into the government and it's sort of owned by Botswana. So if you buy a Botswana mm. diamond, the money's going to Botswana, not to some nice, huge corporate beautiful. whose shareholders all live yeah. in Manhattan or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I thought that could be a good place to start oh, and actually really go and check out to. the mining and check them yeah. out because I feel like if you can afford to, it's quite a good idea to check out. I mean, I'm sure it's the same with fashion. There's so much false information, so much greenwashing, that if you ever get the chance, it's quite good to have people go and check and yeah. then maybe write a report yeah. or something and, and verify and yeah. let you know. Oh, you should definitely go. But the thing is, Africa is like so diverse because yeah. you can get to Morocco on an Orion air flight and yeah. then if you want to, you can go to the Congo, go to Ghana, go yeah. to Botswana. Like it's, uh, Sudan, when we used to go, was the most beautiful, precious place in the world, but now it's become so corrupt that I, I wouldn't advise anyone go there right oh, now because okay. it's so politically messy. I was sort um, of imagining um, amazing sort of temples and things. It, and the, it used you know, to be that. We have more pyramids than there are in Egypt. We have the oldest and the oh, most pyramids. No, no, yeah, not but, but it's um, it's not that safe right now. But it okay. is still beautiful. And the Nile meets the Sudan. Like the blue yeah. and the white Nile meet together in Sudan. And oh, yeah, I've seen documentaries yeah, about that. Yeah, it sounds it's beautiful. Great. Joanna Lumley actually did a whole Sudan expedition. I might have been her. <laughs> yeah, might have been her I saw. yeah, she did a lovely Sudan expedition. <laughs> uh, yeah, always have a place in my heart. It's not as safe as it was. I, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But I definitely think you should go to Africa. It's incredible. It's bad, isn't it? Yeah, that is bad. As someone who does jewellery... I know, I know. Well, this is part of the yeah. process that we've been going through is, is the extent to which the jewellery industry yeah. exploits developing countries and, you know, how it all yeah. moves from this thing yeah. to end up being in Tiffany's okay, in New well, York. And 2023, you're going to go to, to Africa. So I do have a plan because this year I'm going to be 60 like, that's perfect that so it would be a pretty major way of having something that's what to do, saying do. what I'm going to do when I'm 60 and also to check out these diamonds oh, that would be an amazing adventure for you to do little safari oh, amazing do that okay done, <laughs> done. <laughs> have you bought any jewellery for us to look at I have I'm very bad at describing yeah. jewellery so give us your description this is just for me like so tell you the origins of this piece of jewellery which I definitely need to clean um, we can do that for you yeah, oh that would be nice so when my grandmother passed away I have a lot of family and actually in Sudan um, 
jewelry is really important gold is really important to us you know when you're born and how you're blessed and how you have marriage or festivities or graduations you always get gold yeah i have so much gold like it's just like all the time and um when someone passes away usually the grandchildren or nieces and nephews get handed whatever yeah and um I hope my cousins don't mind me saying this, but my mum was a favourite among her parents. <laughs> so my grandmother on my mum's side left me this ring, which I now wear so often that I don't realise how big it is. Then people point it out and they're like, goodness, like you're wearing a big, chunky, chunky ring. And the nice thing about jewellery and stand is most of it's pure gold. Yeah. So it just lasts. I never take it off. It's been in the sea. It's been It's everywhere. got a great colour to it. Yeah. And it never, it's always kind of looked the same. Mm. Just needs a little... Yeah, a little bit of love. So your grandmother, did she move to Saudi or was she, no, did she stay in Sudan? So you, do you have happy Sudan. memories of when you visited Sudan yeah. and then she would be there? Yeah, and... I mean, my grandparents were, my grandfather on my dad's side passed away early. But other than that, gosh, my parents both have lots of links. So then there's a lot of, a lot of us. And my grandmother kind of was this very matriarch, quite strong, quite fierce woman, actually. Yeah. She was a bit, like, I was always very, me and my grandfather had the same birthday. We were always really close. My grandmother was a little bit more scared of her in a real weird way scared of her because she was like um she'd always be like you have to get up and dance come on like let's go dancing like come on like get up dance and I, I was a little shy kid she'd be like no no come on you've got to be you've got to be confident you've got to be strong and I just wasn't that confident and strong so she always kind of pushed that message of sort of you know women should be the strongest they can be this is a woman's world you kind of touched on the business of talking about modesty and clothing and then I was reading some things about how quite a while ago mm. women could dress kind of more freely than they yeah. can now and how that's been a bit regressive and how yeah. how curious you would have thought that everything would move in one direction Backwards. but it hasn't yeah yeah I wrote about that for the Guardian article that's the one yeah, yeah so you found I, a photo of your mum yeah I've, I was just talking to my mum about it because she you know my mum and dad both are quite big on modesty mm. for the most part and I was just like, I don't get it. You wear, you wore miniskirts when you were my age, and yeah. you're wearing vests. Like, why do I have to? Yeah. Like, is this a religious thing or what is it? Yeah. And she was like, actually, it's a lot more cultural. She was like, you know, in the Islamic police and when Islam got Sudan got a lot more religious. You know, there was a huge crackdown on all of mm. us to be a lot more modest, and everyone started covering their head and wearing longer clothes and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, we were so free when we were your age. We wore whatever we wanted, and then slowly it got more and more. I guess. Modest is the word. I don't. I don't know if it's modesty or it's just more control. I was. Well, I was thinking about the words because I think there's probably some some association, isn't there, yeah. between sort of promiscuity and how people dress. But I imagine in your mother's day, mm. you could dress freely, but still have quite safe environments yeah, for exactly. for men and women to have fun without that sort of thing happening. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I just sometimes think yeah, that people confuse. It's like a lot of those American films, isn't it? Where if you have, you know, if you have dancing, mm-hmm. then it, that'll lead to broad and skirty. And it's just patently not true. Mm-hmm. But so it's, true. it's a fear, isn't it? Of sort of, of not having control over yeah. things, I suppose. It is, it totally is. It's, a, it's man-made governments, yeah. right? And just like male armies that want to control society, yeah. control women. So it's a very done, big symbol of that. Actually. Are Sudanese, are they hijab wearing uh, yeah, in general? So would not all of them actually. Like, I think your mum or your grandmother? My, actually my mum when we were living in Northern Ireland she wasn't. Mm. And then she, to be honest September 11th happened and it was kind of unsafe to be wearing a hijab walking mm. down the street. Um, when my grandmother passed away, my grandmother who owned this ring, my mother got a little bit more religious. I think it was a bit, you know, just mm. coming into religion. She was so sad. Um, and now I'd say she... 
I mean, she wears a lot of hats. I'm <laughs> just like, <laughs> what's going on? She wears those like beret hats that kind of like cover yeah, all yeah. your hair and we just have like a little bit in. But she's kind of like let herself go. But she's like, kind of like living her life now. She's like a post-divorce woman. And it's just like, I'm just going to do what I want. I'm not going to dye my hair because I've got white hair now. I'm wearing what I want, doing what I want. She's a lot more... Yeah, she's very inspiring, my mum. Very free. And it's funny business. I was thinking about being in Northern Ireland. and It's not funny humours, which is a peculiar <laughs> business. Being in Northern Ireland and... and feeling unsafe wearing a hijab because when I came to London if you were Irish mm. in London that would be unsafe mm. because we had you know great fears of Irish nationalism and mm. terrorism in London and you kind of would have hoped that the, that the people that suffered that sort of right. discrimination would then learn that discrimination isn't healthy yeah. or helpful and uh, the thing is the thing is about Northern Ireland is people like yeah there was racism yeah, there's a bunch of racism, but like they weren't racist because it was rude or because they hated black people. They just never saw any. Mm. Like there were mm. no black people. It was me and my two brothers and my mum and dad in the entire town. Like mm. there was twelve hundred pupils. There was no people of color. Mm. So for them, it was it was a bit of a curiosity thing. It was a bit like and you know one plus one equals two for them. Like when the twin towers happened, September eleventh happened. I remember going to school and the kids being like, "Do you know that man? You mm. must know that man." Like, it makes sense. I was like 11, yeah. 10, 11. And it's not, it comes from a pure place of innocence. It's not even like, you're definitely a terrorist as well. It's literally just like, do you know him? And I was like, no, that's like you literally knowing Patrick down the road. Like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But there was a lot of lesson learning, I think, when we lived in Northern Ireland. There's yeah. a lot of teaching them. My mum always said, you are the only representation that they have of people of colour. So yeah. behave. <laughs> I was like, that's a burden to carry. Yeah. Um, but it was a weird upbringing, because I think, yeah, you're right, but I don't think of it like that. What a weird really place to move to. What yeah. was the job, by the way? Your dad's My dad's doctor. a doctor. Oh, okay, yeah. that's really interesting, because I've heard stories about the highlands and islands in Scotland, mm-hmm. where a long time ago, you know, in the 1920s, a you know, Nigerian doctor would go to work and they would be the first black yeah. person in that whole area. Yeah. So doctoring <laughs> has been like the pioneer of... of yeah. um, but tough on the kids. Yeah, because tough on the kids. It was tough on us. I don't... Was it tough or was it just like our lived experience? Now, looking back on it, when people talk to me about it, I'm like, oh yeah, it was kind of weird. But at the time, we didn't... I'm a child, I don't know any different. No, and you wouldn't be like you wouldn't be here doing what you're doing if you hadn't have had that experience. Yeah, but, exactly. but still, I still feel like because my sister's mm. husband is a doctor, mm. and, and the kids have been sort of uprooted and mm. and then dumped down in a new place, exactly. and you have to learn to fit in and make exactly. friends. I don't know if that's it's hard. Tough, but it's hard. It's, it's super hard. hard. Yeah. yeah, when we moved to Scotland, I cried for the first year. I was yeah. just like, "Why are you taking me away from my friends? Yeah. Why are you taking me from everything I know?" So it's just the first year, the second year of high school, yeah, yeah first year of high school. Age. I mean, it's, it's a bad, bad age, age to... yeah, because you're just like just getting to grips with like the kids in school and finding your feet and fancying the boys and making your friendship. And then groups. and then you turn up and God. you look different and yeah. you sound different. Yeah. It's like what the you know. Yeah, so when I got to Dumfries and got to Scotland, they were just a bit like, you know, everyone had made their friendship groups. They, yeah, they solidified them in first year. Yeah, I technically did two years of high school in Northern Ireland, but then because of the school system because they're different I would have should have gone into third year yeah. but I went back into second year so oh, then I man. became like the youngest in my year oh man really did second year twice yeah it was very tough do you have friends school friends are you still yeah. friends with yeah, nice, yeah my best friend since I was like 12 yeah from first year of high school still that's friends. so nice very different lives she got married at 16 has five kids four kids and it's a very different life to what I have but we shared that 
Yeah, that growth, that 13-year-old well, growth that you have. You know what? I, I've got it. It all comes out in the wash. Like, yeah. by, by the time you, you're sort of yeah. 65, 70 or something, going to be mm. kids will have buggered off. Exactly. Like, no matter when you had them, everyone goes through the ups and downs yeah. and roundabouts and it all comes out. In the yeah, end. exactly. I agree. Just a little, a little bit of divergence. Um, yeah. yeah, I've never been, I don't think I've been to Dumfries. Can yeah, I go back on your ring? Yeah. Because um, I'm assuming that's a blue topaz. And then it's got quite a nice kind of twisty sort of pattern. The shank mm. kind of wraps over each other and twists around. Mm. It's just quite a big ring, isn't it? It is a big ring. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit squished, but that's yeah, right. Yeah, it is a bit squished. We should fix that. As long as it, well, you know, if it fits, do you, it does I, fit. I, I wonder whether you want to do that. It's kind of quite a classic. Do you remember your grandmother wearing it? No, actually. I don't. Okay, so when you look down at your finger with it on, you don't, no. you don't sort of see your grandmother looking like that. It's I just a nice fun. I still do see her because it's very her. It's yeah. chunky and it's obvious. And did you have like a million rings? Yeah, she had a lot of rings. Everyone has. You've got a nice lot of rings. I yeah, like. You've you got jewelry. quite a lot of. You're, <laughs> a, lot you're of a good jewelry wearer. Lots yeah. of gold. Yeah. Lots of gold all the time. I have gold on all the time. So I love the colour of, of the like, gold that you're wearing. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit dead now, but I feel like gold. Yeah, I have a lot of gold jewelry. I never leave the house with a jewelry on. I feel nice. naked. So naked. I tried to wear a necklace chain recently. Esme's here, by the way. So Esme, say hello, because it's like... Um, did you see me with my, with my necklace chain I on? did. You showed me your Connell's chain. What kind of... Connell's chain. It nice. was very that nice. nice. Yes. <laughs> I liked it. It was you, because you don't wear, ironically, you don't wear, like, a wedding band or anything, no, like, or any jewellery, really. So I think it's I think it's cool. It's a I, good I just forgot to put it on, uh, so I've got to remember. Maybe I just won't take it. Do you take your chains off at Never. night? I think that's the thing. Yeah, don't take them off. Yeah. I think now, now I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit like, you know, like you were talking about your mum, like now I'm going to be 60, I'll just, I'll yeah, just do exactly. what I want. Yeah, exactly, that's exactly what my mum's at. When she turned 60, she was like, oh, great. Right. Maybe I should try I gold as well, though, because I like the idea of being, maybe with a, with a bit more of a tan, <laughs> I think it works better with more honey-coloured yeah. skin. When you go to but, Africa and come back, yes. wear your gold chain. Yes. <laughs> That's a lovely ring. So the next ones we, we've got um, photos of, so yeah. we're going to have a look. So this that. guy is actually the story of this chain, which is like you can describe it. It's a chain, mm-hmm. and it's got a kind of inline kind of bar on it, which is engraved with some sign language. Yeah. So I'm guessing it hangs, you know, about clavicle level. And how big is the bar of writing? Probably a little bit less. Than so that, oh, of course, quite small. So yeah. about kind of two and a half centimeters or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And it's been beautifully engraved, engraved actually. Yeah. And it must say something, but. I don't know what it says. Yeah, it actually says my name. It's um the only piece of silver jewellery I have, because I don't wear silver, I only wear gold. But my brother, my eldest brother, is actually hard of hearing. He was um told at, he was told when he was a teenager by 30 he would be deaf. He's now 36 and he's not deaf, which is amazing. But as part of him, us prepping for him going deaf, we all wanted to start learning a bit of sign language nice. and support him. He became like he's can speak sign language fluently now. Ironically saying speak sign language. Mm. can sign fluently now. And it's such a big part of his life and it's a big part of our life because if I want to be able to talk to him when I'm older and if he does lose his hearing. So it's kind of like I almost wear it in like a 
when I'm thinking of him and I want to remember him that you that's know that's really cute yeah bless him um, we can gold plate it by the way if you want to get gold yeah oh. you just no, you just wear it way more often how about that as yeah, Neil sort like it that. out yeah, yeah, yeah. send it off get it gold plated because um, it's a chemical process so, mm. and it's actually done with kind of electricity so you dip silver in a bath mm. and the bath has a solution of gold in it but it's gold mix it's quite a nasty solution it's gold potassium cyanide oh wow and the cyanide can be um, a bit nasty we used to do our own but um, I had a funny like years ago I had a funny turn I started feeling really ill mm. and I had to go to the um, hospital and they did loads of tests and the only thing was was that it just looked like cyanide poisoning, and um, and they loved it. You've never seen. It. I mean, you're wow. you ask your uh, is your dad still with us? Yeah. Okay, ask yeah. your dad because if you're a doctor, it's like boring, wow. boring, yeah, and then yeah. cyanide poisoning. This is great. So they wow. they were over the moon, and all the student <laughs> doctors came. And you've never seen a happier um, hospital, to do. and they did loads of tests. And then, um, and I was like treated like a king, wow. but then they all came back negative. Oh, and good. so they ch- chucked me out of the hospital and told me to, I was happy God God, I'd never yeah. come back. But they were really excited. Wow. And But what that did was it made me think I'm not going to keep um, mm. cyanide on the premises Yeah, anymore. fair enough. So we send it out to these brilliant people who've got all the health and safety things and, and nothing goes into the environment or anything. But it's an electronic process. So the so the so um, you put a current through it and the gold goes with the current onto the, onto the um, mm. silver. And it oh, just come cool. back gold for you. Oh, I'd love to get in gold. Yeah, I think I'd wear more because I feel like right now I'm like, oh, I don't. I need to take all these off because it's weird. The clash. No, well, some people don't. Some people yeah, mix. People don't mind you know, it. Nice yeah. But if you want it gold, we can do it. Oh, that'd be amazing. Thanks. Cool, cool. Yeah. Okay, we'll do that. So, so that's really cute. Your brother, what works he do? So my brother works in SEO engineering, but he actually wants to move into more accessibility stuff. So he really, really cares about the access for disabilities. Yeah. And obviously, you know, captions, not captions. He's so passionate about the yeah. fact that everything should be, now that we live on the internet and social media, he gets so frustrated when everything's not captioned. Yeah. Not captioned properly because people just turn the automatic captions on. Yeah. And sometimes it's not the right words. And he was like, if people just cared enough to make this accessible to everyone, just pay. People will caption it for you. So his big thing is accessibility. So he wants to move into yeah. that space. Because really yeah. uh, as a business, as someone that runs a business, mm. it's like been so busy, particularly the past mm. few years. And there are so many fronts on which you should be doing something, right. whether it's environment or right. ethics or you know paying conditions, and there's just so much going on that it's quite easy to to forget those right. things. And I think it's really nice. We had a, a woman come into a Floral Street shop, I think, in a wheelchair, mm. and we have a couple of little steps, mm. and she was like, you know, you could sort this out mm. and uh, and we asked some people and it was a little bit difficult and then yeah. it sort of slipped off the list yeah. and then a year goes by and yeah exactly and and then and then I thought because I've got a friend that's visually impaired I thought mm. I thought blimey how would that work mm. and something I hadn't thought about is how does it work on our website right. if you're visually impaired right. and what if someone that had hearing disability mm-hmm. came into our shop how well trained are we mm-hmm. to accommodate them mm-hmm. you know there's like Ahmed he always says mm-hmm. when we go he struggles in restaurants he struggles with mm-hmm. loud noises he can't hear doorbells like mm-hmm. different things like that I went and had dinner with him he, he lives in Edinburgh and I had dinner with him the mm-hmm. other day and I need to make sure that he's always sitting in front of me so if he can't hear me at least he can lip read me mm-hmm. and if I bring someone new into the equation he doesn't know their voice because obviously he understands my voice but new people he doesn't so I don't understand that he's going through so much strain in a loud restaurant 
yeah. that like try to lip read and hear and then there's so much noise happening we take it for granted there's so place. many I mean particularly restaurants now where it's a bit more fashionable Packed. to have stone floor yeah. stone walls pack everyone in with yeah. no one back big in the old table days. that everyone sits together yeah exactly it used to be like tablecloths didn't it and mm. they'd have, you'd have carpets yeah. and curtains yeah. and all that kind of stuff and that stuff that, that stuff also with carpets and curtains it dulls the noise yeah but when everyone's on like tapping away on like steel and on stone it's his nightmare yeah yeah. yeah. Good, let's look at the next piece. Okay. This is beautiful. So this is a, a necklace. Yeah. And it's a charm necklace and it's got a beautiful what's that hand called? But anyway. It's kind of like a palm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's got two hands. Another beautiful hand that's holding the letter B that's set with little diamonds, I think. And then a kind of cool heart that's a bit sort of off hearty shape and another heart that's very 3D and then what I'm going to call it looks like an Egyptian head but I don't mm. know if that's if yeah, it could be Sudanese effect yeah. and then there's a sort of square cone <laughs> that looks like basket weave but I don't know what that is which one? that one pyramid ah I was thinking it was yeah. like some kind of yeah, yeah great, great oh good so did you collect these all yourself so, or was it and there's actually also I'll tell you about the story of the one that's missing so oh no uh, when you're not a bad missing you'll like the story okay when you <laughs> when I was born um, when you're born as a baby, especially as a girl, you get given a lot of gold. Mm. Um, either goes to the mother, goes to you. And I was given a lot of charms, like a lot of necklaces. So what my mum did is she collected them all into one charm. So this is every... I was given all of this stuff from the day I was born. There is one that's missing that's a scripture in the Quran. It's called Ayat al-Kursi and it's basically a protection scripture. And I gave it to my little niece when she was born because oh. when you're born, a little gold scripture is meant to pin to your outfit mm-hmm. every day to mm-hmm. protect you. But my mum couldn't get one in time from Sudan and she couldn't find one she liked, so I've taken it off my charm and given it to that my is, niece. That is the cutest yeah, so missing that I've ever heard of. So many people are like, <laughs> yeah. oh, it fell off or it no, was stolen or something, but that's so cute. So the sad thing about this is I don't wear it often because I'm so <laughs> scared of it. Because yeah. I would be, if anything, I would be most devastated. If I Isn't that um, the weird thing about jewellery is that as the value gets to a certain level, uh, particularly yeah. the sentimental value, I mean, commercial value, you yeah. kind of think, well, you know, yeah. that's just money. But sentimental value, oh. then then it almost becomes unwearable. But then unwearable. isn't it terrifying also leaving it at home or something? Because you know, it's like... And my mum had it in a bank for because we keep a lot of our mm, gold in the mm. bank and or in safes and I had it in there mm. for a long time. My mum's like, Listen, you're in your thirties. Like when are you gonna start wearing this? And I was like, Oh I now own it but I still don't wear it. But it's Do you know what you probably need to like invest in a little I, think, I really think it's worth having a little safe box that you yeah. can kind of bolt to the wall or something yeah. at home and, and just because they're probably not that yeah, expensive so and you can you can keep super sentimental. And all of them are pure gold and I just feel mm. like man, I'd be mad at myself. So something that has bugged me for a while, and it might well be much better now, mm-hmm. but when you go, for example, to the V&A mm-hmm. and there's the jewellery gallery <laughs> and it's like the history of jewellery, yeah. it's not. It's the history of European jewellery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did go to an exhibition in New York that was actually about jewellery and it was jewellery from all over the world. Amazing. And it was amazing. It had some amazing African and Indian jewellery. Mm. But um, is there any, like, old traditional Sudanese jewellery? Do you have any? Yeah, there is. I actually, let me show you one that my my late aunt actually left me a piece of jewellery that's super traditional. Because technically, there's some amazing technical work comes out of Sudan. But, um, oh my gosh, are you choking me? Yeah, so that's pure, pure gold. Do you own this? (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to touch it, it's in the safe. Something I've really missed from this podcast series Mm. is... And what I'm really interested in is the story of immigration and jewellery and how mm. and how jewellery can connect you to 
But this is so valuable. This is like, so this should be in a museum. Yeah. This is so that's, you put it on your head when you're getting married is one of the traditional outfits. Usually, actually, Sudanese jewellery is famous for the white bit is usually black and red. So it's usually all marked with black and red. This one is just pure, um, I think it's probably elephant tusk or... It's kind of striped with grey in there. So Yeah. I don't know what that is. Do you think it's like some sort of horn or bone? I think it's a horn, yeah, or bone. But that's a very traditional one that you would wear. Um, This is beautiful. So what it is, is it's, it's a long necklace and it's like a long series of discs, but the discs have this sort of, they almost look like sun, so they've got this beautiful sort of frilly exterior. Some of them are filigree, some of them are patterned on the inside. So probably at sort of collarbone level, the two sides of the chain are joined with all these things hanging off. And then further down, at kind of sternum level, there's this bit where the chain's joined and it has this white, bony, stony stuff. And then it comes down with all these other leaves to a bigger kind of sun star pattern on the bottom. But it looks very... Super intense. Beautiful, intense, but... I mean, that is so... Um, yes, I'll wear that if I ever get married. That's so gorgeous. Yeah. Hurry up and get married. It's yeah. worth it, isn't it? <laughs> so usually when you get married in Sudan, you will wear a lot of gold. So there'll be loads of gold bangles on. and yeah. lots. There'll be, there should be a matching probably earring set to that. Yeah. And it's worn with a big red outfit. It's usually like a red fabric that you're wrapped around. And then you'll wear a headpiece usually that will have little gold bits also hanging off it. I mean, this piece of jewellery is so Sudanese. Mm. And obviously, it's really exciting because mm. if and when you get married, you'll, you'll be wearing it and it'll connect you with your Sudanese heritage. Mm-hmm. To what extent do you feel Sudanese? I feel really Sudanese. Do you? Yeah. What's I feel that really... I've got bloody Ipswich. I mean, God. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel really Sudanese. I think my parents just raised us to be really, really Sudanese. And like as yeah. I got older, being so desperate to fit in, actually, in a weird way, I was like, no, there is somewhere I fit in. And it's where I was always at the beginning. Is there a good Sudanese restaurant in London. No, there's not. Oh, come madness. on. I really I know, love Sudanese. Madness. I mean, Apparently I there's a couple been... of stalls in Shepherd's Bush, which I've never been to, that my dad said he went to once. But Is no, the food amazing when you go there? It's amazing, yeah. Because restaurants are hard to run. They're expensive to run. So if you yeah. want to cater Sudanese, you can definitely do that. So one day, if I ever throw a party or I throw something, I will do Sudanese food. Let's do another podcast one day and you can bring a... I'll bring you some food. <laughs> right. only, we'll, we'll do like a whole spread up yeah, here. Yeah, let's do like bring a takeaway. We'll forget about the jewellery, but yeah. some nice ones. Can we put the photograph of that of course, on the website? Because I just think that's fascinating. And I love the uh, the history of jewellery is yeah. about... I mean, that's why I was saying I was a bit disappointed in the v mm. is The history of jewellery is is about global peoples yeah, and, and really movement is. and travel and connection. So, so often it's a connection to a culture or a heritage yeah. or a past. Yeah. That's what it does so well. I think that necklace just really kind of yeah. sums that yeah, up. Yeah, definitely sums it up. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I'm a little bit... Um, I mean, I would not have gone and brought it yeah. down here to southeast London yeah, if no. I was using well, it. It's in a but, safe. But yeah. I'm sort of imagining... <laughs> holding it in, in yeah. your hands and Super it must precious. have a good noise to it yeah. as you kind it's of like, feel like, it in your it's like, oh, yeah, it has that, like it's quite light it's not heavy heavy jewellery but jewellery has a noise yeah. and something like that is going to have a good noise yeah, it does have a noise yeah, I'll bring it to you one day if I ever have it well so, what yeah. we're going to do is we'll go plate that if we can have that necklace the silver mix we'll go plate that, that and you can wear it I'd love that that's so kind of you thank that's you that's not a problem at yeah. all but um, that project in Saudi was so fascinating and interesting have you got any more projects on the go and can you tell us about any of them yeah i do i actually just finished filming my first ever self-shot documentary i shot in egypt in november how do you do that um, how do you is it i like had all the camera it was all me i was shooting the whole thing i wasn't in it i decided to just be behind the camera i made a decision oh, around so then you're not presenting i'm not presenting okay, yeah great. i just I thought about it a lot and i was so desperate to be a presenter and so desperate to be front camera but i think something just clicked to me that i was like 
to tell a story, it doesn't necessarily need me to tell it. The mm-hmm. story can also tell itself. And I'm still telling it because I'm the director, so I'm visually capturing it. Yeah. And part of the moment. So uh, we spent time with these two amazing sisters in Egypt who own Egypt's first and only modeling agency and followed their story how they're trying to basically take over take over Egypt through the voice of modeling and basically liberation of women and what that looks like. And then while we were out there, Dior ended up having their first ever show in front of the pyramids. It was insane. I should show you guys a video. I, I did stalk you on Instagram. Yeah, did you? So, so I, I, I kind of, <laughs> they gave the, us the, that the, backstage the, the, access. And obviously the Saudi doc I'm super, super proud of. But filming this documentary is one of the best things I think I've ever done. I'll show you. I can't wait. Is that Dior? Yeah, it's the Dior show. It was insane. It was insane. That is insane, but that is like James Bond times a thousand. Yeah. That is so... It was incredible. Like, I can't believe... Full orchestra, did the pyramids use, are lit did up. Did they use any of the um, Egyptian models? They did. Oh, thank yeah. God. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. They were actually... I have to give it to Dior. They were very, very good. They used all Egyptian production team. Right. They didn't... You know, obviously they flew their team out, but in general right. it was all done in Egypt. They gave back to the Egyptian people. It was um, a spectacle. So, let's see. I'm in the process of cutting a trailer that will hopefully fund trying to get some money to make it into a bigger thing. Okay, so will that go up on your website once the trailer's done? Or how are we going to how are we gonna follow that? Or, or should we just Wait you for could just follow me and then eventually you'll hear Follow about you on Instagram yeah. and you'll, you'll let us know. Yeah, when we eventually, can yeah. Great. Yeah, okay. it could be a bigger thing. I'm excited Exciting. about it. Exciting. All right, thank you. <laughs> Buzzman, I want to say thank you very much for coming and being my guest Thanks and showing us your jewelry. This is so fun. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you'd like to see some of the pieces we've been talking about, or for more information about any of the issues we've discussed, please check out our website and follow the links to the podcast page. You'll also find information on how to share your own stories, give a bit of feedback, or have a look at all the jewellery-related things I've been up to recently. We've also got some great jewellery-making tutorials on our YouTube channel. There's lots to see. Just go to www.alexmonroe.com. Thank you.